0: We're starting a new message series this morning. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes. Yes, that's right, the Old Testament on Sunday morning. It's going to be okay. I think what we're going to see is that God's going to speak to us through this book in a very contemporary and relevant way. That we'll see that the things that Solomon writes about are appropriate today and that the gospel solves all of life's problems. So let's pray together and we'll start our time with the word. Father, we do just ask that you speak to us this morning through your word. Change us now, O oh Father, for that is why we are here, we are ready, we've prepared our hearts to hear from you, because we know that your word is the only thing that will ever change the human heart. So we give you freedom and surrender to do that this morning. Change us, O Lord, in Jesus' name and, and in His likeness, we pray. Amen. There's a, a monthly magazine, Texas Monthly, and a couple of years ago, they have different articles that people write in there about their experiences and editorials and things like that. A couple of years ago, a woman wrote basically about the, the punting of her faith. She had been a Christian for a long time and basically was punting her faith. And here's what she said. She said, when I was 42 years old, two things happened to me that cracked the fundamentalist lens. Her words, fundamentalist lens. First, my mother died of breast cancer. Less than a month later, my husband, a Methodist minister, told me he wanted a divorce. As I struggled to make sense of my life, I realized that the God of my childhood, listen to this, no longer worked for me. What did she mean, that God of her childhood no longer worked for her? Was her assumption that somehow her mother was not supposed to die? Does God promise immortality? And the fact that her husband left her, tragic thing, horrible thing, evil thing, to be sure. But is that part of the deal, that God prevents all that from happening? That when you become a Christian, no bad thing ever happens to you? What do you think about that? Is that what we know to be true in life? No, it's not. Because we all know that hardship and pain are part of this life. Where does it come from? Who has not had something bad happen to them recently that was not the result of your own bad choices? Who has had something bad happen to them in their life just recently? Yeah, a lot of us have, absolutely. And and the thing is, still to this day, you probably don't know why it happened. Why did it happen? You don't know. Now, how many of you think that something like that is going to happen to you in the next 20 years? Yeah, all of us ought to be raising our hand on that one. And this is the question that so many men and women have to face today. I hear this all the time, and you hear it. Uh, you hear it at the water cooler. You hear it among circles out in Starbucks. You hear people when they talk about God and religion and religious things. Here's the kind of questions people ask Where is God when bad things happen? Right? Probably the number one question. Where is God when bad things happen? How can I keep from becoming bitter towards God? Like you hear the woman in that Texas Monthly magazine obviously had become. People ask these questions, how do I deal with the uncertainty of life? People ask, what do I do when I'm not sure of God's will for my life? Here's a good one. People ask, when bad things happen to me, is it because I don't have enough faith? Oh, that's a hard one, isn't it? And here's one that, that I think if you've been to this church long enough, it's actually asked a lot out there, but I hope you know the answer to it here. Are Christians supposed to have fun? What's the answer to that one here in this church? Yes. Yes. But those questions plague people. Pastors and ministers and people uh, in the ministry or even uh, in small groups, if you lead those, you're going to get those kinds of questions. You know, the problem of evil, the old situation, the problem of evil. Uh, If God is sovereign and he's powerful enough to eliminate evil, right? He is. And if he is good, then then he would, people would say. But since evil clearly exists, then God must not be sovereign or God must not be good, both of which are wrong. So how do you answer that question? How do we deal with questions like that? How do we deal with questions about life? You know, throughout history, there have been several prominent ways of thinking about God, about his involvement in our lives, about his involvement in the world a couple of overarching ideas here, deism has been a prevalent way of thinking throughout history, that God is really not involved when evil happens, that he's like the great watchmaker who winds up the watch and then lets it run, and, you know, whatever time comes is is what happens. He winds up the clock and lets it rip. Evil happens, and there's nothing really that God can or will do about it. Does that even sound remotely like a sovereign, almighty God that just lets things happen? Or then you've got the theology and the way of thinking of Job's friends. Remember Job from the Old Testament? Boy, that dude, he had a lot of bad things happen to him, didn't he? And as these things were happening to his life, his friends would come and give him counsel. And their basic basic reason behind all of their counsel was this. These things are happening to you, Job, because you're evil. Or you've done something evil. Where have you sinned? Where's the sin in your life? Where's the evil in your life, Job? Because God wouldn't do this if you weren't evil. We all know that God had let Satan rip into Job's life, right? That was the very beginning of the book. God sent Satan to prove that Job's faith was stronger than the things of this life. But Job's friend's theology is basically good people do not have bad things happen to them. Do you believe that today? Good people don't have bad things happen to them? Because our first question, if we think that way, is usually, well, where did I go wrong when bad things happen to me? And God is not a great cosmic bellhop. God is not the great gumball machine when you put in the quarters and out you get something on the other end. That's not how God works. Like the woman in that Texas Monthly article And her thinking must have been, if I put in enough quarters, I'm going to get out the colored gumballs that I want. All of those ways of thinking, deism, Job's friend's theology, the great gumball, God, all of that's wrong. The problem is that it's so prevalent in today's worldview. It's so prevalent in today's philosophy, even in the church. Here's a question for you. Do you generally see life as the glass half empty or half full? What do you guys think? Some of you are going to say half full. I'm an an optimist. And some of you say, well, no, I'm not really that happy about stuff. And it's always half empty. Now, here's the thing. Neither one of those are really wrong. It's a viewpoint. It's a perception. It's a perspective of a lens that you see life through. Right? We know people who are always upbeat and happy. You know, your house just caught on fire. Oh, that's great. Glad I had all my CDs in the truck. Great. Good news. Then there are some who just get upset about everything in life. Here's the thing. The book of Ecclesiastes is God's perspective on life when bad things happen. When the world doesn't behave quite like it should, Ecclesiastes and the the experience of Solomon and his perspective, which is really God's perspective in the end, is how we can see things in this life. Now, we just finished, if you've been following along with us, um, uh, a study in the book of Romans 6, 7, and 8. and had a little mini-study in Romans chapter 8 for a few weeks. And boy, let me tell you, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to to top Romans chapter 8. All right? So I'm going to ask that you kind of work with me in this study as we move into the Old Testament. It's just hard to to top Romans chapter 8. I get that. Because that's one of the... Best chapters of the best books in the Bible, one of my favorites. But the word Ecclesiastes is actually coming from the Hebrew word Koheleth, and it means the preacher. If there was a philosophical book in the Bible, if there was a book about philosophy, this would be the closest one to it. You know, those of you who've taken philosophy in school or college, you know the the guy Rodan, right? What's the famous thing? The thinking man, right? The thinking man. Right? Well, this is the preaching man that we're going to be looking at today. So let's look at the Old Testament. Let's look at the book of Ecclesiastes. It's an amazing book. It answers these questions that we have just asked a little while ago. It answers these questions. It makes us want to proclaim Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We're going to see that... That verse fits into the book of Ecclesiastes. So here's what we're going to do as we go through this. I'm going to try and do this every week. As we walk through the book, we're going to see Solomon write about life and his viewpoint and his perspective about life. And we're going to try and fit that into today's uh, philosophy, today's worldview, today's experiences, right? So we're going to try and make the Old Testament apply to today. Many of you have talked to me and said, when are we going to do the Old Testament? I don't really know why it's there. Why, why, why those books? Well, I think one of the things that God shows us is how to live life as the people of God. So, so I think we're going to try and find out what is, the, what is the author talking about? What is Solomon talking about? Let's apply it to today. And then let's see how it points towards Christ. Because all the Bible points to Christ. Everything that happened in the Old Testament ultimately points to Christ and the Gospel. It is answered in the New Testament. And here's what I want us to really get, and follow me every week now. I want you to see, and I'm going to learn too, I'm going to watch for this, that all these things that happen to Solomon that we read about in Ecclesiastes, you know what is the answer to all of them, the solution? The gospel. Can the gospel really solve my life's issues? I think it can. And I think we're going to see that as we work through the book. You know, the gospel is not just the power of God for salvation although that's typically where we leave it a lot of times. The gospel is powerful to convict us of our hearts and our sin and our guilt and give us new life in Christ. And we are saved and beyond God's wrath and forever destiny, uh, heaven is our destiny and our home. And we say, hallelujah, we love that. But then I think we tend to forget that the gospel keeps working. It keeps changing. It keeps restoring all things, as we'll see this morning. So let us consider one of the most difficult questions you and I will ever face or ever hear from anybody, and it's this. What is the purpose of life? What's the purpose of life? Where do I come from? Why am I here? Where did I come from? It reminds me of the story about a five-year-old boy who came to his mother, and she asked him, where did I come from? You can imagine you mothers who have had to think, answer that question, you're thinking, how do I answer that to my five-year-old boy or girl? And the mother took a deep breath because she had dreaded the moment that he would ask that question, where did I come from? But she was determined to answer it truthfully. So she started explaining in explicit detail the whole reproductive system, conception, birth, everything. And about 20 minutes later, the very bored little boy interrupted and said, but mommy, where did I come from? Jimmy said he came from New York. So let's look at the lesson that Solomon wants us to hear this morning. What is the purpose of life? Where did we come from? And we're going to find that in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, please open them. In the chairs in front of you is a Bible, and it's on page 477. Thank you, sir. Page 477 of the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's read together verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of the preacher, Koheleth, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. There is the author, Solomon, the son of David. Remember David the giant killer? Killed Goliath the giant and became the, uh, the second king of Israel, the one who united all of Israel, great King David passed on his kingdom to his son Solomon. And here's the interesting thing. So the author is Solomon, king of David. And, and at that time in the Old Testament, uh, Israel was a great kingdom, one of the greatest. Even the queen of Egypt would come and get answers and get counsel from the great wise Solomon. And his riches were known throughout the world. If anyone should have known the answers to uh, the purpose of life and the questions that it poses, it probably should have been Solomon. I mean, Solomon had it all. He had money, more money than he could ever spend. He had possessions, more possessions than he could ever enjoy. He had wives, 700 wives, more than he could ever please. Almost maybe it was a curse, huh? 700 wives. He even had wisdom far greater than anyone else in his day. Yes, Solomon had it all. And yet, the man who had it all didn't have a grasp on his purpose in life. And in fact, showed signs of depression. And in fact, as we'll look, he might have actually walked away from the Lord for a while. Can you believe that? Because he just couldn't grasp the purpose and the meaning of life. So in verse 2, he starts off this thought. This is the overarching thought of the book of Ecclesiastes. He sets the whole thing up here. He says, vanity of vanities. Some of your translations say meaningless, I think. Any other words out there anybody has? Besides vanity or meaningless? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Pretty strong language. It's a Hebraism, by the way. In Hebrew, if a word is used twice, it makes it a superlative. It makes it the most of. So like when the writers say the holy of holies, that would be the most holy of places. So when the writer here, when Solomon says vanity of vanities, what he's going to talk about is the ultimate vanity. We need to define vanity. It's not really without meaning. It's not really brief, and it's not really chaotic. It's not really disordered. We actually see this description of, of vanity of vanities explained in other passages in Scripture. For example, in James Chapter 4, he talks about life being futile, life being vanity, life being just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. All of you remember those cold mornings? Maybe not here in San Diego, but somewhere else where there's a cold morning when you breathe out and it's gone. That's life, according to James. That's vanity. Life is just a short time and it's over. You know, in Genesis, we see that God tells Adam from the ground you were taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's vanity. There's no immortal body here. In Job, Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. There's vanity. Solomon is asking this question when he says, vanity of vanities. What is the ultimate purpose of life? That's what he's asking. Because materially speaking, life is short, and then you die. You know, the Bible says 70-plus years, basically, is what man's lifespan is. And here's the, here's the sad fact that Solomon's going to explain to us. And this is harsh. He starts off with a slap in the face. This is not, you know, easy reading, really. And it shouldn't be. He's trying to make a point. He's basically going to tell us that vanity of vanities, life is vanity, means someday you're going to wake up and die, and you're going to lose everything. Everything you've accumulated is gone. Kids will rent your house and purge your possessions and spend your inheritance. And that's what the world does. It moves on. Ultimately, we'll be just a distant memory of the Thanksgiving meal. What a harsh observation. Pastor uh, and professor at Dallas Seminary, Tommy Nelson. Listen to him describe the end of life as Solomon would be talking about vanity of vanities. Listen to what he says. When you die, there will be a funeral. You may have 25 or 2,000 people attend, but do you know what they'll do after the funeral? They will catch lunch and have a great old time together. Then they will hurry back to work because someone was covering for them while they took the morning off. That night, they'll go home to their families. They'll watch a sitcom rerun and forget all about your memorial by morning. Then he says, are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? You know, we, we had a, a marriage seminar here a few months ago, and one of the final closing thoughts that we talked to husbands and wives was leave a legacy. Leave a legacy. Why? Because in 50 years or 70 years, your grandkids and great-grandkids are not going to remember you. They're not going to know who you are. They're not going to go to your gravesite and visit you. And the only thing that you're going to have to pass on to them is the legacy of how you brought up your kids and how you taught them to be in this life. Because life is vanity. In the end, we'll lose everything. It goes quickly, you die, and pretty soon nobody knows who you were. Mark Twain had a very famous quote. He said this, The world laments you for an hour and forgets you forever. Vanity of vanity. So as we begin our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, we might see it as a rather pessimistic view. You're maybe saying, hmm, Solomon's probably a half-empty kind of guy. But on closer inspection, I think we will see from the viewpoint of Solomon, of the author, that there is reason for such an approach. Because Solomon is writing this book as it related to his experiences with God, and I think maybe he walked away from God for a while. You kind of get that from the text. Can't prove it. It's a possibility. He sure talks like it. The first two chapters actually are, are almost written to unbelievers and atheists because God's not really even mentioned in there. And maybe at that time in his life, you know, after he wrote uh, Song of Solomon and maybe before he wrote Proverbs, he went through this little crisis in life. Isn't that like what we all do? We have a great mountaintop experience with God. And at some point, we're going to be really st- strong, solid Christians. But in the meantime, we kind of have this growth. We're just not really sure what's going on in life. And Solomon, I think, tried to make sense out of that. Maybe he had one foot in the world for too long. We could be guilty of that, too. Maybe he just couldn't. I guess with 700 wives, you're always going to have one foot in the world. But maybe he just couldn't let go. Maybe he was just so stuck with treaties and and other empires and and other kings, which is the reason why he had 700 wives, by the way, because he he was making sure his, his alliances were all in shape. So maybe he was just so busy in the world he just kind of couldn't see things except through the lens of someone living life without God. He's going to use the term under the sun about 29 times. And under the sun, S-U-N, Solomon shares his experiences and observations about life lived in his own power apart from God. And apart from God's influence, he's trying to find satisfaction and meaning in life. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think he's going to come back to that point where he shows us the lessons that he has learned. Verse 3. So he's just said, vanity of vanities. We're all okay? We understand what he means now, right? Verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does? There's that phrase, under the sun. So what advantage does man have? Or, Or maybe another way of saying that is, what profit? What profit does man have? Now, what is profit? It's what you have left over at the end of the week, right? You businessmen, you know, you take in a lot of money, and you have a lot of expenses, and then when you subtract the two out, what you got left is your profit. So in the end, after you've done a whole lot of stuff in life, and all the bad stuff's gone, what is, what's left? What profit is left, is what he's asking in this life. He's not discussing eternal rewards. I want to make that clear. That's not this message. That's another message from another passage. So Solomon is not talking about the eternal rewards we're gathering as we go through this life. He's talking about what happens in this life. Solomon is talking about life these years on this earth, the benefits of our labor on this earth under the sun. Now Solomon's question is actually kind of rhetorical because I don't think he really sees any advantage to it, right? Life has no advantage. Life has no profit, he says. All we do here on this earth, it just gets washed away. In fact, he's going to give us an example here of how we can relate to this world. He says in verse 4, A generation goes and a generation comes. A generation, that's a bunch of people. They, They die, but the earth just keeps going on and on. He says, also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and as circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. And here's this description he wants us to get, very important. He's describing nature as a machine. Did you see it in the passage? He's describing nature as a machine that just keeps grinding on. Which is where a lot of the angst and the pain of men and women comes from, by the way. It's the classic tension of mankind. When they stand in the machine of nature and the machine grinds them up and spits them out and just keeps on going. Y'all know what I'm talking about. He says the sun rises and sets in the same place. The circular motion, it never stops. Every morning we get up and there's the sun. And every night there it goes. And it's up the next day. Like a machine just grinding on. He says the wind blows, swirling around its circular course. So here's the sun going around and around. Here's the wind going. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Right? You ever watch the Weather Channel? I love the Weather Channel. You see those storms that come away off in, like, the African coast, and they start developing, and then they turn into a hurricane. You're like, "Wow, really? They started a little thunderstorm over there and off the coast of Africa, and by the time they get to North Carolina, it's full-blown hurricane. Amazing! Off it goes, all the way around. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh pock, 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 pock. the rivers are flowing. From the mountains and the snowpack and the rain, they flow in these great rivers and they flow into the sea and it evaporates into the clouds and the clouds produce rain and snow and it's just constantly going round and round. Do you see the machine? The machine keeps rolling and it never rewards us. Life never comes to a climactic point. You get old, you get sick, you get sick, you get weak, you get arthritic, and then you die. As Miss Erna likes to say, getting old is not for wimps. And here's the thing. Here's the sad part of understanding the machine that we're caught in. It's all the great things that we did when we were young. Our buddies die. Our friends die. There's no one even talking about with you anymore. No one remembers what you did. No one remembers who you are. The machine keeps going. Pocket, 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 pocket. Whoosh, whoosh, rain. Then he says this in verse 8. All things are wearisome. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Man won't stop and listen. He won't learn. He just gets caught up in this machine and won't stop to figure out why things are the way they are. Man will keep looking. Man will keep watching, he will keep listening, he will keep hoping that somebody out there, some philosopher, some religion, some new person or some new idea will give life meaning and help me understand the absurdity of life. Man keeps looking for something, somewhere that will give him the ultimate meaning of life. Now here's why man keeps looking. Look at verse 9. This is why man keeps seeking. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So, we all know this line, don't we? There is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. Mankind will never find anything in himself, in his own rationalism, in his own reasoning, and in his own knowledge that is new and novel. It's already all been figured out. There's no fountain of youth. Mankind will never find it. You know, we see this in the New Testament when Paul is preaching on the hill of Areopagus, on the Mars Hill. And he goes up there and he sees, you know, his heart is just, is just torn because he sees all these idols of all these, these people that have been worshiping. And he goes to the hill and he starts preaching. And it says in the text in that passage in Acts 17 that they were all there gathering every day to hear something new. Mankind wants something new doesn't want to admit the life is a machine and he's caught up in it and ground up in it and you can't find satisfaction in this life. Man is a finite being and as a finite being he will not find the infinite within himself that gives him ultimate meaning. In verse 10, is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new, although it has existed for ages which were before us? There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Man keeps remembering his error. It's a bad picture. And I think Solomon wants us to get this. It's as bad a picture as he can paint Man in himself will not come to any ultimate meaning within his own knowledge and experience, but he will keep trying generation after generation, repeating the same error. Man is like a little gerbil. Anybody have gerbils when they were kids? They get that little exercise wheel, and you're like, man, won't that gerbil ever stop? Just keeps going on that exercise wheel, won't ever stop. That's man, mankind, in his search for ultimate wisdom and ultimate meaning in life. You say, wow, this is is quite a way to start a series, isn't it? But here's the thing: Solomon's proposing right at the beginning his overarching statement. This is his thesis. This is, he wants us to get this as we move on. Is what is the purpose of life under the sun? S-U-N. He says, well, to him, looks like vanity. Ultimate vanity. No profit, nothing ultimately to be gained by men and women as they journey through life. Now, question, is this relevant issue today? Do you think the world sees things like this today? Oh, you better believe it. Is this a contemporary way of thinking? Oh, sure it is. Maybe more so now than in the history of mankind. It's one step away from postmodern thinking that all things, whatever you want is good for you, brother. Hey, Christianity, that's good. Buddhism's good for me. What about you? Well, I worship frogs. Well, that's good, too. It's one step away from that to, well, you know what? We're a post-Christian nation. Jesus is irrelevant. We don't even need Christianity anymore. It's old, passe. Let's find something new. We're a post-Christian nation. The people of this country are looking for something new. What are the indications of that? Are there any? I think there's a couple that we, there's a lot but I think there's a couple that really stand out to me. You know, we have this idea that more education is what's needed. We learn more education. Teach people more. Teach them better. That's going to be the solving of all our problems in life. If just people were more educated, poverty would go away. You know, out of wedlock, birth rates would go away. All this stuff would go away. People are just more educated. That's the new thing. Yeah, that's been done before. It didn't work. Here's the two things that I think really show me that, we're living in Ecclesiastes 1 today. And you all may know somebody like that. You may know an Ecclesiastes 1 kind of guy. That just life is just grinding them up and grinding them down. And maybe that's you this morning. They just can't seem to get ahead and things keep happening to them. And they just find no joy in life and they're miserable, wretched people. Did you know that the popularity of suicide is at an all-time? Suicide is at an all-time high. How do people get so hopeless and so desperate they want to take their lives and actually do it? Popularity is incredible today. Suicide seems to be the first choice among people who have problems. Here's the other side of it. There's a book that Rick Warren wrote called The Purpose-Driven Life. You know that book is so incredibly popular among non-churched people? Why? They're looking for purpose. They don't have any. That's why that book has sold billions, is because people are looking for purpose in life. I don't know if you watched the news this morning, but the Pope is giving uh, one of his last messages down in Rio de Janeiro, and I forget how many, was it three million? Three million people were on the coast listening to him. How can three million people hear anything besides themselves? That's not the Three million young people, by the way, young people were searching for God, and the Pope showed up to give them a message. If you don't think that young people are out there seeking today, you are wrong. They are, because they know their parents are Ecclesiastes one people, and there's no hope for them. They've lost it. Young people are searching. Are we ready to give them the real answer? How about this in your own life? Ecclesiastes 1. How many of these things relate to you? Let's see if you can relate to uh, Solomon as he writes Vanity of Vanities. Maybe you or maybe someone you know is never satisfied with anything. Right? I mean, you can go to Taco Bell and get full, but tomorrow morning you're going to get hungry again. You're just never satisfied with life. It's never enough. Never enough of this. Never enough of that. Always looking for something more. And I can tell you right now, hanging out in the community of surfers, we are guilty of that. Just, just ask my wife, she'll tell you. Your hobbies can so consume you, your golf, whatever it is, because we are an entertainment-driven country. Your Xbox, your gaming, whatever it is, if you're so caught up in it that consumes you, you've got to have more and more and more. You're living in Ecclesiastes 1. Do you ever know anybody or do yourself think things are never going to change? Nothing's ever new. How about at work? You just go to work and this machine just grinding you up every day, going to work, punching the clock, same old thing. Yeah, it happens to all of us. School, seems like I'm never going to get out of school. Same boring teacher, same boring class over and over again. A little more serious, how about you and your spouse? He's never going to change. He makes me so mad. It is does the same things over again. You ever have that attitude in life? Sure you do. You ever think about the significance of what you do is soon going to be forgotten? You know, there's an old saying in the, in the Navy and in the military, no one's exp- uh, not expendable. Right? Someone's going to come behind you and do your job. You're not the only person who can do this. And sometimes those thoughts can get into us. We're like, wow, so why am I here? Do you ever feel like, what's the use? Nothing's going to change? I don't really matter. Life is not worth the effort. You ever feel like that or know someone like that? Sure you do. Well, since Solomon offers this overarching question and statement about life, let's answer it this morning in an overarching way. This will be our time to reflect and respond as I go through this. So think about what Solomon has said. And and see, here's the thing. I think the solution to this overarching problem of what's the purpose in life. We're going to get into the details of that as we move through the following chapters. But ultimately, what Solomon is asking is, overall, life is just vanity. Well, here's the answer to that. There is purpose found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's your verse to take home. I think it's actually on the the backside of your bulletins this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul writes to the church. He says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. But then he adds these three very important words. It's not in vain in the Lord. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes how we view life, even right here, right now. Forget about eternal rewards and the things that are going to happen to us. We can get through life right here, right now, live differently under the gospel, under the sun, S-O-N, than people who don't live under the sun, S-O-N. And again, when we think of the gospel, we usually think of sin, separation from God, Jesus, and salvation. Those things are really good, right? And that's what the gospel is. It's salvation for everyone who will believe. For me, for you, whosoever believes is saved. But we also need to see the gospel as a story, I love to think about the gospel as a story, not just a set of theology and doctrines to believe, but a story, right? It starts in creation. God is the creator, creates all things. But then man falls through sin, and God changes the world. And in Romans 8, remember we studied this, the natural world groans from being subjected to, get the word, Vanity. God subjected the world to vanity, to futility. He created this this machine that keeps grinding on because of the fall and because of sin. So we've got to realize, first of all, that we live in a sin sick world. That's the machine that we're caught in. Mankind is caught in that judgment and the futility of today's world. But here's the good news. Redemption was at the cross through the work of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of redemption is not just our salvation. But that the whole world would be restored. Big word. Restored. If you look at Revelation 21 and 22, you go read about the end of the world, what's going to happen. All things on this earth get restored. We're not talking about the heavens and the new Jerusalem. This earth, things get restored. And if we look at the gospel this way, as a story from creation to fall to restoration through Jesus, then what is the point or purpose that we get? Here's the point, restoration, one word. The purpose of the gospel, and I'll show you how this relates to us in a minute. The purpose of the gospel is that all things will be restored in Christ. All things, big thought, right? All things, all peoples. All places, all cultures, all segments of cultures, all of our kids, all of our jobs, all of our marriages, injustice in the world. All things will be restored through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. Have you ever watched that movie, The Lion King, with your kids? It's kind of an old movie, but it's still pretty good, right? Lion King is a great theological movie. Did you know that? Paradise. Paradise lost. Paradise lion king that's the story of the gospel here's the deal eventually the whole world is going to be renewed to the way god originally created it rebellion and death and decay and injustice and suffering will all be removed and when everything is restored god will be seen by all for who he truly is and he will be glorified and that day is coming that day is part of our eternity it's part of our security and i can't wait for that day So, Solomon asks, as we reflect and we respond, I'm going to ask Rush and and Micah and Andy to come back up and get ready to play for us. Solomon asks this overarching question Where's the advantage? Where's the profit in life under the sun? 1 Corinthians 15 says, You toil, yes, but you toil in the Lord. God makes your meaning, your life meaningful and purposeful here on this earth. Because he's going to restore all things through his church. Church is not a time. Church is not a place. Church is not an event. Church is me and you. And God is using us to restore the world. There's your purpose. Do you believe today that God is using you to restore families and cultures and societies in San Diego and Coronado? Do you believe that today? There's your purpose in life. Have you surrendered your life to God to let him use the bad things maybe in your life and the good things in your life and your work and your school and your playtime and your time on a beach? Whatever you do, have you surrendered it all to God so that he can use it to restore the world? That's the purpose of the gospel. Skip all the way to Ecclesiastes 12. The very last verse is what he says, the conclusion when all has been heard. Solomon says at the very end, when it's all said and done, here's the deal. Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. You know, we sang that song earlier. I surrender. I surrender all. I want to know more about you. That's Ecclesiastes. I surrender all and I want to know more about you. That's what Solomon says the purpose of life is. Surrender your life and learn more about God. Man must look to God for his purpose. Life under the sun, S-O-N. Our ultimate purpose of why God has saved us and left us here for a little while anyway is to allow him to use us in his ministry of restoring people and families and communities and nations and reconciling them back to himself. For his glory. So here's the question as you leave today. Are you allowing God to use your life like that today? If you are, you will not have to say vanity of vanities. All is vanity. If God is using your life to restore all.